welcome everybody to this uh, recording for the 26th of April 2020 uh, at Calvary Evangelical Church in Brighton. My name is Philip Wells, I work on the team of elders as a full-time elder and I'm leading this morning. We're going through the, uh, the Bible, we're going through the book of the prophet Isaiah and we've got to chapter 63 so our theme this morning is the Sovereign Conquering Christ. And following this, there's going to be Zoom coffee and chat, which uh, Steve Ellicott uh, is usually in charge of and will no doubt uh, send out an invitation if you'd like to join in with that. So welcome to everybody. Some of you are uh, regulars. And if you happen to be just dropping in to see what goes on, you're very welcome too. I'll try and explain what's happening. But obviously uh, this is uh, something that we normally do and I will just carry on with the normal things that we do as a church. So other details are on the screen by my head. Uh, there's a contact email, audio website uh, for the evening audio which Steve is doing and uh, this we trust will be up on the YouTube channel uh, on Sunday morning uh, that you can look at. So what are we going to do? This is our plan for this morning. I'm going to pray in a moment, then we're going to sing. We have various songs and Bible readings, and the talk is on the sovereign conquering Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll carry on. Lord, you know every day. You know all our hearts. You know everybody joining in with this at this particular time. Please use this. Please show yourself to us. Please may we be in touch with the living God through the things that we do in these next minutes. We ask you yourself to take ownership of this, to do your work and show us your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song is 98A. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love, his steadfast love to the house of Israel and the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Let the mountains sing together for joy, for the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So let me find the right button to click. Oh 
Gracious God. Sing to God new songs of worship. He comes to judge the earth. Oh, that's good news that God will come to put everything right. We're going to be thinking along those lines as we go forward and uh, we're going to have a, a prayer now from Jerome. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you so much that we are able to come together and worship you as your people this Lord's Day. Although we are not together in person, Lord, we can still know your presence, and know your power in our lives and father we are particularly mindful of this time where there's so much confusion and uncertainty and fear anxiety and very real worry about the future lord that we can trust in you as our anchor our rock our strong tower our fortress and our god it's with that in mind, Lord, that we, we consider who you are, Lord, and we lift up our praises to you as the infinite, the eternal, the unchangeable God, the one who is full of wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice and truth. And Lord, we, we recognise that so much that's going on around us is way beyond our control yet we know lord it is within your sovereign control lord and we consider those places in scripture where it says i form light and create darkness i make well-being and create calamity i am the lord who does all those things we think of where your word says in amos does the disaster come to a city unless the lord has done it Oh Lord, we thank you that we can rest in your sovereignty. You are a God who is ruling and reigning over every aspect of life and everything that comes to pass in your creation. Lord God, help us to rest in that. Help us to find assurance and um, solidity and comfort in that, Lord God. 
And may we not be easily stirred, Father. May we cast all our cares on you as our rock and know that we are certain um, in our salvation and we have assurance in our salvation through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do thank you for the redeeming work of our Lord and Saviour who we, we know is coming back one day to put all things right, Lord. And we, we thank you that although right now we see so much turmoil, we see so much confusion, we see so much injustice, Lord, we know that Jesus Christ will make all things right and just and upon his return. But right now, Father, we pray for your reign in our lives and for you to fill us afresh with your spirit. Lord, we are so aware of our frailty our weakness at this time, our smallness, we, we're aware of our sin. Lord God, please forgive us. We've not placed you at the centre of our lives. We've been allured by materialism, um, our own needs, our own, own wants, our own desires. We have in many ways been greedy. Um, we've been uh, allured by our own sensuality, our own um, desire for more our own lovelessness, Lord God. We've so easily um, um, allowed the world to shape us and form us. Oh Lord, as a nation, we have largely turned our back on you. Oh Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. We do pray for your forgiveness and we do pray that out of this situation there will be much good and that your church would be raised up, that your church would grow, that your church would flourish, that there would be fruit of repentance, that we would see Zion high and lifted up, that we would see the continuation of your covenant people being brought out, many added to your church from the nations that we would see great revival we pray Lord that many would be brought to an end in themselves and see their need and that would consider matters of eternity we do particularly pray for those who are suffering at this time Lord we think of those among us who are lonely we think of um, single parents with children having to juggle work and teaching at home and we think of those who have lost jobs and facing economic strife and are fearful for the future and worried about how to just put meals on the table we think of the elderly and those that may not have the technological know-how and means of communication lord that are feeling isolated and alienated from your people we think of those that are grappling with mental health difficulties and depression and anxiety. We think of those that are in fear in their own homes due to the threat of violence or, or harm from those that are oppressing them. Oh Lord, there's so much need that we can become overwhelmed, but we do pray for the most vulnerable and those that are mostly affected by this current situation with COVID. Draw close, Lord. Bring your healing and helping hand. 
we pray for those professionals on the front lines, particularly health workers, nurses, doctors, hospitals, sacrificially working um, and placing themselves at risk for the good of others, Lord. Please help them, bless them and be with them. And we just pray for this nation as a whole. We pray for the leaders of this nation. We pray for our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, that you would give him wisdom. You would give him discernment. That you would enable him to draw on the wisdom of his uh, um, uh, advisors in this matter, Lord God. We all ultimately pray, Lord, that these leaders would bow the knee to you and that you would draw them to a saving faith and a submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and that Christ would rightfully have his, be recognised to have his place which he has as King and Lord in this nation. We pray you bless this meeting this morning Lord with your presence and your empowering. Bless the preach word, be with us all in the power and the strong name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Joan, for that uh, lovely and moving prayer. We uh, are going to sing about this Jesus whom uh, Jerome was referring to in his prayer. We have this song, My Jesus, my Saviour, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. And let me just try and click the right buttons here.
Fantastic. Well, wonderful Aaron. Uh, Aaron and Annika leading us in that uh, My Jesus, My Saviour. The passage of scripture that we're looking at, um, and for those of you who are just dipping in, we, we base our services very much on what it says in the Bible. And the passage that we are looking at is in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 4. And Christopher's going to read that. I've also asked Julia to read on so we get the context of it, but uh, she'll do that after we have uh, sung another psalm. So first of all, we're going to have Christopher who will read to us our passage, which is Isaiah 63, verses 1 to Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendour, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk, and poured their blood on the ground. Amen. Thanks, Christopher. Uh, that's quite a tough passage of scripture. We are going to try and face head on what it's actually saying in a few moments. Uh, but thank you for reading that. And uh, we're going to have a song. We're going to sing Psalm 2, which is about the successor to the ancient King David, God's King who rules the earth. The Christian claim is, of course, that this is Jesus Christ. Uh, and the psalm says why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers uh, against the lord and his anointed one let us break their chains they say and shut and throw off their fetters so this is quite a, a hard-hitting psalm but we're going to sing it these are the 
words. It's the version that um, Andrew King wrote, uh, found in Praises for the King of Kings, and the music is coming up. It's the tune Leone, for those of you who are interested in tunes. people finding shelter from God's King in God's King to turn to him and find shelter kiss the Son lest he be angry blessed are all who take refuge in him well thank you Julia for recording a reading which goes on from what um, Christopher read I don't think I've got the numbers quite right here, but she's going to read on 
in verse 7 and through to the end of the next chapter because this is now a response to the input from this person who trod the wine press and the response goes on to say I will tell about the kindness of the Lord the deeds for which he is to be praised so this is Isaiah 63 actually from verse 7 and here we go Today's reading is taken from Isaiah 63, verse 7, up to 64, verse 12. I will tell of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, Surely they are my people sons who will not be false to me, and so he became their saviour. In all their distress he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in open country they did not stumble, and like cattle that go down to the plain they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people, to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us? But you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard nor ear perceived no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. 
Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert and Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasure lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Oh, Well done, Julia. That was a long reading, and thank you for bringing that to us. Well done. The reading mentioned the Redeemer. The Redeemer is the one who buys back people in trouble, who takes people out of slavery, delivers them from bondage at a cost to himself, or a great expenditure of effort. It's usually a family member who does this. And we're going to sing about the Redeemer, about Jesus Christ and his character as the Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Oh 
Thank you so much, uh, Aaron and Annika, for that. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. We're going to talk a little bit now about the passage that was read in Isaiah chapter 63. So I'll pray for God's help. Help me, O God, to speak truth. And where truth is spoken, help all of us who listen to receive it and align our lives with it. We pray that we may draw near to you. You will draw near to us. We pray through this Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Amen. Well, let's start off by talking about the problem of evil and its recompense, what it deserves. Our post-Western, post-God, Western culture, I think, has a problem with evil. Uh, does it exist? Does evil exist? Well, in some ways we would say, yes, it certainly does. How do you define evil? What would recognised as evil? Well, I think people would uh, say yeah, child exploitation, that's evil. Uh, manipulation of the truth, saying that something's um, true when it isn't, and or saying it's not true when it is. Uh, we would say that was evil. I think we would. Um, selfishness. Is that evil? And can we actually understand evil at all without reference to the deepest obligations that we have and our deepest obligations are to our maker, to the one who made us, who upholds us every moment of every day and the one, yeah, we're his, our deepest obligations to him. Shouldn't we take that into account? And how widespread is evil? Would it be correct to say most of us are, in inverted commas, good, uh, and only a few people are evil? And let's use this word that the Bible uses, sin, which is my personal evil. How widespread is it? Okay, the Bible's going to say we're all sinners, and I think that's something that uh, we need a lot of help in our Western culture to, to grasp. And then where does evil come from? Um, so does evolutionary theory help us with this? I mean if you think of David Attenborough, so he sort of personifies evolution, evolutionary theory. Is there any room in that theory for moral evil? Or actually, would it be actually more logical in an evolutionary view to say that evil's just a necessary process in a meaningless universe because the strong survive and crush the weak and that's just what happens. And then what do you do with evil? Uh, what do you do with it? Do you overlook it? Do you tolerate it? Do you retrain it? Or as on our detective programs on the telly, like Law and Order, do actually make it your business to catch the perpetrator and punish evil? Well, those are quite big questions, aren't they? And quite searching questions. I'm not going to go any further with the questions. I'm just going to go to the answers that the Bible gives. And the Bible is very clear that the universe is not meaningless and random, but is made by a personal God 
who has authority to set the boundaries of good and evil and also being the maker has the authority to judge which is which and in the end to give evil exactly what he deserves uh, and this is not bad news this is good news it means that life is important uh, that good does matter that somebody is watching and somebody values things and they do have a value and this is at the heart of our Bible passage today that we're going to look at. So it is in the book of the prophet Isaiah. If you have a Bible and you can uh, look this up, you find that really helpful. You might want to pause and find in the front of the Bible Isaiah 63. Let me uh, give you a little bit of context to this. Uh, the Bible doesn't deal with the problem of evil in a sort of abstract way, but it looks at real people in real situations in real time and real history and the Bible has a, a plot line and a plan and it says that the God who made everything has a plan to bless all the nations and to solve their deepest problems those problems being evil and sin and death and to build a humanity with every relationship healed that's to say relationships with people and relationships with God and relationships with the um, environment and to build a place, a community of human flourishing which you could for shorthand call the city of God. And in the plot line of the Bible God has started this plan with a prototype uh, which was ancient Jerusalem and uh, he focused on a particular people, the Lord, the God of Israel has been dealing patiently with his people, rescuing them, teaching them, blessing them, being patient with them. But characteristically, the response of the human heart, even to such kindness, is to dishonour God, to ignore him, to turn away from him. And the particular instance of this is to be sent away from God into exile and uh, the people of Israel were sent into exile in Babylon historically for a 70 year period and that geographically if you like illustrates the spiritual condition of human beings far from God exiled from him at the present time and uh, these chapters that we've been looking at reflect on uh, the people of, of, of of ancient Israel reflecting on their total moral failure and they see, say things like this in 59.12 they say our offences are many in your sight and our sins testify against us our offences are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities rebellion and treachery against the Lord turning our backs on God so they're saying yeah, this is us we are in deep moral trouble and there is prayers for God to radically uh, act and intervene. So Julia read to us this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that God would do something about this terrible situation uh, of our human sin and lostness and far being far away from God. And uh, the, the, question, the chapters pose the question, who is going to do this? And in the chapters 56 to 66, they wrestle with this uh, very intense tension 
between the impotence of human beings to sort out their own spiritual needs and this loud cry for God to come and do what they cannot do. Rend the heavens and come down. Save us. So we were asking the question, who's going to do it? And as we've been going through the passage, we've seen a number of uh, parts in the first person where they say, I. And I draw your attention to one person that popped up in the text in uh, 5920. It said, the Redeemer will come. And in 5921, it says, my spirit will be upon you. And then in 61.1, we have the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Sovereign Lord has anointed me, using the word Masha, from which we get Messiah. So this is the Messiah person. To preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. So here's this person uh, who pops up. And we spent a little while, if you might, might remember, on that Sunday asking the identity of this agent who does the Lord's work yet is distinct from the Lord, and yet is not a third party. And you may remember that I quoted Jesus's view on this, where he read this Bible in the Jewish synagogue, read this part of the Bible in the Jewish synagogue, and said to the astonishment of his hearers, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So it was Jesus's view that it was about him. And that leads us to the most mind-blowing estimate of the magnitude of Jesus. And we need to have that in the back of our minds as we approach this passage. So I've entitled it The Sovereign Conquering Christ, and it is Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. Who is this, coming from Eden, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendour, striding forward, in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So who is this person? He matches uh, Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 21, and we'll see some of that correspondence as we go through. But Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 21, was the Lord himself saying that single-handedly he would intervene and save. So you get it in verse 16 of chapter 59. He was appalled that there was no one. Sorry, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. This is the Lord stepping in to save his people. And we get the same sort of thing in 63, 5 where the speaker there says, I looked, there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. So this person is clearly very closely allied to the Lord in a way which perhaps only becomes totally clear in the New Testament. But it, it's there in these scriptures, this agent allied with the Lord and yet distinct from the Lord. Okay, so let's look at just some of the features of the text. Um, one of the features is astonishment, isn't it? So it begins, who is this coming from Eden? Who is this robed in splendour? 
Why are your garments red? So there's an astonishment. Who is this? And uh, another feature of this is that the passion, uh, if you like, a strength, determination of the person described. So uh, he it is said in verse 1, he strides forward in the greatness of his strength. He isn't coming in a wobbly way. He's not exhausted and he's not um, weedy and weak. He's uh, strong. And it talks about his sort of determination, doesn't it? Striding forward. And it speaks about his emotional intensity. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations and no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. There's a lot of emotional intensity there. In verse 4, the day of vengeance was in my heart. Um, and the year of my redemption has come, or better still, the year of my redeemed people has come. I looked, there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave me support. So a, a lot of passion, if we might use that word, intensity. Another feature of the passage is colour. So uh, it starts off with the question about the clothing. It is dyed red stained crimson it says in verse 1 and uh, it is uh, red verse 2 why are your garments red and then we get repeated references to the wine press the place where the grapes are squashed and the juice the red crimson purple juice spreads out and stains uh, everything verse 3 um, I stained all my clothing uh, and the equivalence between wine and blood verse 6 in my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground so uh, features like that and another feature which is repeated is trampling treading a couple of words used alternated uh, verse 2 um, treading the wine press verse 3 I have trodden the wine press verse 3 I trampled them down and trod them down and uh, verse 6, I trampled the nations in my anger. So you get a bit of a feeling for the, the sort of thing that's going on in this text. It isn't a sort of comfortable, um, woolly sort of text. It's very active. And another thing in the text is the aloneness, or if you like, the single-handedness of the person. Verse 3, I did this alone. Nobody helped me. Verse 3, from the nations no one was with me. Uh, verse 5, I looked, there was no one to help. Uh, I was appalled that no one gave me support. So my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. So uh, he does this single-handed, and that's a, a feature that we've seen before. No one else can take the credit for what this person does. They do it themselves. And uh, another feature of the text is uh, vengeance, wrath, uh, and this ha happens to be linked with, and we might find this a strange linkage, with salvation. So uh, we have in verse 1, this person says, I'm mighty to save. And then uh, in verse 4, the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redeemed people so both those things coupled together there 
and uh, in verse 5. My own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. So a coupling of salvation and wrath there. So those are, those are some of the features of the text, and uh, perhaps help us to get a bit of the flavour of it. I mean, feel free to press pause and read it through again, so that you really got the impact of this text. So I'm going to ask three questions. Number one, who is this? Well, that's a question in the text. Number two, why are his garments red? And that's a question in the text. And number three, why is it, why does it matter so much? What is the driving force behind this? Why is he so intense about it? So those are the three questions I'd like us to look at uh, for a few minutes this morning. So question number one, who is this? Who is it talking about? It's a very crucial question. In the end of the previous chapter, 62 verse 11, we'd actually been invited to be on the lookout for someone coming. Behold, your Saviour comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. So we're on the lookout for somebody, but who is it going to be? Uh, and the question, who is this, is asked in verse 1. Who is this coming from Edom? Now, what is the colour of this question? Um, is it simply mystery? We don't know who this person is. Is it horror? Look, who is this? Is it incredulity? I can't believe it could be this person. Well, it, it surely it's not just information, is it? There's something going on there. What are we told? Uh, well, we're told that he comes from Edom. Uh, there's a play on words. Uh, Edom is uh, the red country, and it's linked with the word Adam in verse 2. So Edom, verse 1, Adam, red, verse 2. And uh, Bosra, so my dear commentator Alec Matir, uh, says that the, na uh, the name of Bosra means wine place or um, vineyard. I couldn't confirm that anywhere else I looked, but that's what he says. And uh, uh, he's uh, a man to be respected. But anyway, that makes the linkage between redness and wine. And uh, who, who is Edom? Well, they represent, it's a, a nation, ancient nation, that who like represents the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. They've been described before in chapter 34, verse 6, where it says, My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, see it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. And they're sort of iconic for the nation, or the group of nations, if you like, or the, the national spirit that is dead set against this God. We're told that he comes... So I've gone back to the question of who is this? Who is uh, this person striding forward in the greatness of his strength? The, the robes, it says robed in splendour. Perhaps the word notable would be better there. His clothing is notable. Oh, look at this something rather unusual about this clothing. Who is this that comes with such 
strange clothing. But he's coming along in the greatness of his strength. Uh, and the person speaks, uh, I, it is I. It is I. I speak in righteousness, said Eckhart. This person doesn't speak fake news, half-truth, weasley words. He speaks straight. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Uh, the Hebrew word Yeshua, or uh, something like that, which um, a bit like the name Joshua, which is in fact a bit like the name Jesus. So who is this? He's clearly a most unique and impressive individual. And uh, let's see if we can focus a little bit more on him. I've already made the comparison with 59.15 where uh, the Lord uh, says that he undertakes intervention and salvation. And this person speaks in very similar terms. We could also look back and link him with the anointed saviour in 61.1. This person brings good news to the poor and binds up the brokenhearted and proclaims freedom for the captives and the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. He comforts those who mourn. So that particular emphasis in chapter 61 is his ministry to the poor and the distant and the helpless and the imprisoned. He sets them free, but it doesn't omit a reference to vengeance. So we have three passages, the, the one about the Lord, the one about the anointed saviour, and the one that we've got now, this conqueror with the red clothing. And, and we might ask, have we got three different people here? And I'm going to just say no we haven't got three different people we've got three different angles on one person and the fulfillment of these chapters and prophecies is found in Jesus that's what he said that's what the New Testament says uh, and that's the thing that fits he is the one being spoken of here Jesus himself, as I've already mentioned in Luke 4.19, when he read that in the synagogue, said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, he did omit the reference to vengeance, because that wasn't fulfilled, that hadn't yet happened at the time of which he's, uh, at which he spoke it. And here's another part of the New Testament, it's Revelation chapter 19. And this also picks up what's said in Isaiah and refers it to Jesus. It's uh, one of seven visions towards the end of the book of Revelation. And, uh, it's the vision of the rider on the white horse. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there is that very, uh, what shall we say, daunting vision of the risen Jesus, the one who has uh, in his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, the one who rules the nations and brings them into compliance, and uh, the one who, uh, as we read, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So my question was, who is this? And my answer is, uh, this is Jesus. So it's speaking of, speaking of Jesus. My second question is, uh, why are his garments red? That's the question that's asked in the text. Why are your garments red like though somebody treading a wine press? Now, in, in the flow of the book, there have been garments mentioned already. Uh, 59.17, uh, God has the garments of, uh, uh, well, it says the garments of, sal the helmet of salvation, the garments of vengeance. He wraps himself in zeal as in a cloak. So garments is nothing new. 61.3, Zion had been given garments of praise instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. A garment of praise. And uh, 61.10 I delight greatly in the Lord for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So people dressed for the occasion as it were. And here uh, we have notable garments. Here's somebody wearing garments that are notable because of their coloration. Where did that coloration come from? They're all stained red, like somebody who's been treading out grapes in a wine press. And I found this uh, advertisement on the internet. It says, fruit by the foot, grape stomped wine is making a comeback. And uh, if you want to follow the advert, you can there. It's um, uh, a, a vineyard. And, but there's somebody doing exactly what we've got here, treading grapes and getting messy with the, with the grape juice. So why are his garments red? Because he's been treading a wine press, a metaphorical wine press, like treading on grapes with the release of red juice. He's been treading on people with the release of life's blood. Uh, verse 6, poured their blood on the ground. a very gory image isn't it it's as horrifying as it is vivid it's most unmistakable it's violent it's lethal um, but obviously it's imagery but it is all those things and the people on whom he tramples are the nations it's a uh, Verse 6, I trampled the nations in my anger. 
I've trodden them down in my wrath, it says in verse 3. Mm. Why are his garments red? Because of this. And I think it would not be unlikely for people to at this point say, whoa, I'm not going to listen to this any longer. I strongly object to this. And the objection would be that this is aggressive and cruel and savage and unworthy and unchristian, you might say. Or you might say it's unacceptable and morally indefensible. Well, let's take that head on, shall we? Are there any answers to those accusations? So I think we can just say for one thing, what we see here is not bad temper and tantrum. It isn't God just losing his rag. There is something very much more intentional, deliberate, unashamed about what's being said here. It's foretold, it's pre-planned, it's actually long delayed, and there is not a hint that God says, oh I wish I hadn't done that. It's not repented of one bit. Reminds me a little bit of Jesus's anger in the temple, which you may remember when he turfed out the money changers and the people selling doves and overturned the tables of the uh, of the money changers. Not pique and irritation. He, he twisted a, a, a whip of cords first. Very deliberate. The Jesus of the New Testament is quite capable of being angry. He looked round the synagogue, angered at their hardness of heart. So this is not bad temper. It is actually a warning. And it's exactly the same warning that you get in Psalm 2. Therefore you kings be wise, and serve the Lord with fear and trembling joy. His anger lies forever near. It's announced to us that this Messiah will rule that he has anger against those who defy him and despise him and rebel against him and he says you have a chance be wise now is the opportunity to make friends to take refuge in this king and if you are far away from this king, if you're still not a subject of his, if you resent him and reject him, that's the time for you to turn, reconsider, rethink, and come to him with apology and confession and to take refuge in his promises of forgiveness. So it's not bad temper. It's not arbitrary. Now, as I began to say before, Edom is not just any old country that, uh, you know, some innocent bystander. They are portrayed as having a perpetual hostility towards God and his people and all he stands for. That, that's where they're at. They have long opposed their maker with belittling and with insult and with settled antagonism and 
God has been patient with them for, well, I guess we could say centuries. And he says, you know, I won't put up with that forever. There will come a time when you have so vexed my patience, so exhausted my patience, um, that uh, you will get exactly what you deserve. And do you know, I really do wonder whether our culture isn't rather like Edom in exactly that way. We've had so much good things from the Christian God and yet the Christian God, well, I don't know, where are you with that? There's a lot in our culture that's settled and hostile against him, I'm afraid. Answer three, it's not hasty. Jesus, you remember when he quoted along these lines, didn't say, now is fulfilled vengeance. That remains to come. So this is uh, this is looking forward to the distant end of the world. We don't know how far away it is, but uh, there will be an end of the world. This is looking forward to the day of judgment, you know, like the last day, doomsday, if you will. And to be told about it in advance functions as an advance notice and a warning to take note of. And if you like to bring it into this very, very present moment, what is the virus? It's a pre-echo of judgment. Uh, God's wrath is being revealed ahead of time. He's giving us notice that things are not right at a very, very deep level. A bit like all the warning lights coming on on your computer printer and uh, and uh, your microwave beeping. It's wrong. It needs attention. It needs maintenance. And that's what God is saying to us, even at this time. And the third thing, this isn't the only thing that's said about, sorry, the fourth thing. This isn't the only thing that's said about the nations. If they want to remain enemies, then they will surely be defeated in shame and destruction. But there is a big invitation and a big vision of the nations actually changing heart. And even the most perverse enemy of the nations coming in humility to worship Israel's God and to ascend his holy hill. That's in Isaiah 2. The nations stream to Israel's God. So there's a wonderful invitation. It isn't just judgment, is it? Invitation to us. And uh, if we're saying that this vigorous antagonism against evil is unacceptable. Doesn't it show how much we're mistaken? We're mistaken if we think that our morality is slightly better attuned than God's. This passage shows the aggressive nature of his holiness. It is his righteous, fair, massive reaction against the sin which we, in our moral ineptitude and moral indifference, think is trivial or unimportant. Uh, without wishing to be political, do you think some leaders have been wrong to trivialise the virus and say it's no worse than flu? Do you not think they had a misreading of the situation? And don't we misread sin if we think, well, it doesn't matter too much, we can't work out why God should be worked up about it at all? This is our endemic failure to appreciate the reality of God being God. 
So here's the third question. Why is he so intense about this? Because we can't mistake the emotional force of this passage. We've mentioned things already. He comes striding along. He's mighty to save. Speaks about his anger and his wrath. Talks about the day of vengeance in his heart and the year of my redeemed people. And the, the language of saying he needs to lean on someone for this demanding task. Where, where is help? Verse 5. There was no one to help. I was appalled. No one gave support. And the, the support for this is found from within the character and being of the conqueror. Uh, verse 5. My own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. There was something deep within me that propelled me along in this demanding and, and grueling task, if you like. My own wrath sustained me. So if he's fully emotionally committed to this work, and there's no reluctance in that sense. I mean, he, there's, he's, he's taken a long time to get to this point, but now he's got to this point. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it half-heartedly. Why is he so intense? We can't mistake the emotional force, and we can't mistake the rational force here. There's, there's some reasoning. It's not done blindly. Verse 4. The day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redeemed people has come. So there's, there's a reason here. Vengeance is repaying exactly what is due to evil, and redemption is to rescue from slavery by payment of a great price or expenditure of great effort. Uh, and you get that same coupling as we've seen before, verse 5. My own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. So there are two rational aims here. One, to judge evil, and two, to save his people. And God is committed to both those things decisively in this passage. But that leads us to the question of how does this act of bloody destruction advance the salvation of his dear people? That's a big question, isn't it? And I've got a few answers here. So firstly, justice is not satisfied until the wickedness of the nations is given its full, fair, just recompense. People in our world seek, we say, closure um, when there are blameworthy things done. Perhaps some hideous child abuser. They want him to be caught and punished closure people say well God is saying well that there's something in there that is deeply true and echoes down to the heart of the universe justice is not satisfied until there is a full recompense but let's take that a little bit further and say that until the enemies of God's people are soundly defeated and God's people are not free so when Egypt when sorry when Israel escaped from Egypt and the, the imprisonment of, uh, that, that Pharaoh brought upon them, they weren't free until Pharaoh's threatening army lay at the bottom of the, of the Red Sea. Until, because the army wouldn't give up. Pharaoh wouldn't give up trying to grab them, and until they were defeated and that enemy was vanquished, the people weren't free. The same way that we won't be free of the virus until the last microbe is obliterated. 
and Jesus frees his people from sin and death and the devil and until those enemies are completely dealt with freedom has not yet been achieved Free, freedom from the devil and his citizens and his foot soldiers and that's why this passage has that catastrophic final determination in it and let's just pick up one more thing here um, I was noticing in verse 3 their blood spattered my garments and stained all my clothing the word for spattered there is um, to sprinkle and I want to say there's a close linkage actually between this fierce judgment and powerful final salvation so the word for sprinkle is nearly always but not quite always but nearly always something that the priest does when he takes blood and sprinkles it so sacrificial blood sprinkled to make something clean which is rather ironic isn't it that blood poured out by an innocent victim in the sacrificial system has power to cleanse the sinner and to wash clean New Testament says this peculiar thing they washed their robes in the blood of the lamb as an old hymn there's power wonder-working power in the blood of the lamb and uh, this is just a little bit of an echo really a foreshadowing uh, the great trampling down at the end the great spilling of blood to the ground the great spattering and sprinkling but that's that treading down occurred not only on the last day but on the cross where Jesus was not then the trampler but the trampled on a place where he was squashed for our iniquities he was bruised for our sins where wrath was poured out and fully landed and punishment was meted out and wrath satisfied and atonement made on the cross which makes Jesus not only a judge but a powerful saviour someone who has in his hands both judgment and salvation so we draw to a close we ask the question who is this who is this that comes from Edom with his garments stained crimson and the answer is this is the Lord through his son Jesus Christ the powerful saviour and the powerful judge and why are his garments red because he is the agent of final triumphant catastrophic victory over evil that includes victory over the people who with full responsibility sign up against the Lord as their course of life and then we thirdly asked why is he so intense about it and the answer is because God is so holy because evil is so evil and because redemption and salvation does not bypass judgment and blood and violence but Christ's cross is the place of judgment and therefore therefore the place of full salvation and I want to invite all of us to be glad in what Christ has done to honour him as the one who holds judgment and salvation the keys of death and hell 
are to our Jesus given. I want to encourage us to respect him, to love him, to put him first in our lives, to give him the honour and awe and wonder that he deserves, and to find ourselves sheltered from wrath in the one who can inflict wrath, but also who bore wrath. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. His cross is the place where sin is exposed, but also the place where sinners can safely hide, sheltered under his protection. And we shall sing, Rock of ages, cleft for me. us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I hope that was a helpful time together and uh, Look forward to seeing you soon. Bye-bye from me.